Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you. This week on New Mexico in Focus, how can the same set of impeachment facts lead to such different conclusions? We talk to an expert. It's my team, ride or die, and that team is horrible and terrible and bad. And almost information doesn't matter, sort of, when you're so entrenched in that position. And using a real world problem to prompt students to find solutions using science, tech, engineering, and math. New Mexico in Focus starts now. Thanks for joining us this week. I'm your host, Gene Grant. That real world problem, making utility emergencies safer for electrical linemen. We'll take you out to a power substation to see how students are trying to solve it. A Rio Ariba County Sheriff's deputy is off the job and charged with child abuse after he used a taser on a 15 year old. Now that's one thing, being fired twice and leaving two other gigs while being investigated begs a much bigger question. How did he get the job in the first place? We all love sports and all it can do for civic pride, but a $28 million bond package for sports tourism as an economic development driver has been offered by the Keller administration, and it has some people wondering just how focused it is. We'll discuss that. We start with Governor Lujan Grisham and her administration's decision to join California on emission standards. Symbolism, or a part and parcel of a new era of renewable energy in New Mexico. Here's the line. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham says New Mexico will have new vehicle emission standards that will go into effect by the end of her term. New Mexico will join 14 other states that have pulled up alongside California as it battles the federal government over emissions standards. Now, can states flex their muscles enough to get the federal government or car makers to listen? Joining me today for their valuable insights and opinions, we welcome line regular and UNM Law School professor Serge Martinez. Rachel Sams is here. She's editor of Albuquerque Business First. From the Associated Press, reporter Mary Huditz returns to the table. And Eric Riego is back, too. He's a former state senator and head of New Mexico Working Families Party. Now, Eric, start this with you. Uh, symbolism is a powerful thing in this world right now, and in this country right now, I should say. Is this more symbolism than reality? Or what, how, do you, how, do you, how do you take this? Are we tacking behind California to kind of get in their draft, or is this really a thing here? I think Mexico? it's a bold move. Obviously, okay. we're not going to impact the, the national automobile market, to be honest. You know, sure. We're sort of a blip on in terms of car sales and so on, in terms of the, the actual economic benefits. And also, mm -hmm. it's, it's questionable how big an impact this is going to have on sort of the environment and climate change and sure. climate goals. However, i got to give the governor credit for this is a, you know, joining... You know, it's it's not quite the majority of states yet. You know, but it's getting closer uh, mm -hmm. to say, you know, we're going to set a real clear uh, standard here. Right. She's actually setting a pretty aggressive uh, standard, 52 mpg for the fleet um, mm -hmm. by 2025, I think it is. Mm -hmm. um, yep. And just to say, look, um, we have a we have a comprehensive strategy to get to these climate change goals. This is one thing. Mm -hmm that we can do, it's not gonna, it's not gonna solve it. And, and, and I just wanna say about the industry, like mm -hmm. there's this myth that the industry is somehow, um, you, know, you know, 17 of the major automakers are saying this is the right thing to do mm -hmm. because the rest of the world, mm -hmm. in terms of our own competitiveness, you know, them being able to compete in these markets where, where higher fuel economy standards are really important for That's consumers. Right. Right. So this isn't some crazy just uh, green initiative. This sure. is really about being competitive in international markets for our domestic industry. Mm -hmm. And of course, for our state to be part of it, I'm super proud that we did this and I'm glad that I think it's the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I want to come back to you on, on the idea of methane as well. It's okay. part of this as well, everybody. Uh, Rachel, the idea, Eric just mentioned this, that the marketplace may have spoken
misspoken a little bit here. When uh -huh. you think about the trending, what's going on in the past few years, about cars that get better gas mileage, electric cars, you, you see what I mean? The public is saying, okay, 52 miles a gallon is not some pie in the sky thing here. I would like to have 52 miles a gallon. A right. lot of people would, you know yeah. what I mean? So interesting, isn't it, that the public has a little say here? It is a really mm -hmm. interesting time. You are starting to see in the marketplace more of that pressure from consumers that is starting to drive, starting to drive the money. Mm -hmm. um, I think mm -hmm. of, when we talk about this, I think of Facebook and Los Lunas. You have a bunch of renewable power in Los Lunas because Facebook came into the state and was like, hey, P&M, we want renewable power in our data center in Los Lunas. Interesting. So when you start it, to see that demand. Let me, ask, let me ask you this. You bring up an interesting point for business. Does this signal something to business out there? Is this a flare out to the rest of the country, say this governor, and we take this kind of thing serious? Do bus does business pay attention to that kind of thing? That could be. Okay. Yeah, it, it could be something to watch. If that yeah. is a big issue for you and you're looking for folks who line up on that principle, right. then yeah, it could get attention. Gotcha. You know, Mary, uh, Auto emissions, second highest form of greenhouse gas emissions here in our state after oil and gas. It's not a small thing, certainly. Is this the right approach, I guess, is the fundamental, fundamental question here. What does New Mexico get out of this? Well, um, I think certainly, like, the New Mexico gets its, I'm, the full Democratic, across the board, practically leadership gets its um, headway into the issue. And right. then tacking on to, I think, like a national movement around um, states' rights. It's, it's interesting, the resistance against like the federal federal decisions. Mm -hmm. um, I think, you know, that is part of a trend that I think that they might feel some tailwind on. I, right, right, exactly right. And Serge, when you think about it, I was interested in the pushback from Republicans. I mean, she made the announcement in New York. Ha ha, she had to take a plane <laughs> and use some fossil fuels to get to New York to make this announcement. I get it. However, <laughs> You know, your sense of it, how this was rolled out. It, was this something that, uh, was she looking for something New Mexico specific, just to quietly add on here? How, what's the sense of how this is going to go down for New Mexico? What's, what's your sense of that? Uh, I, I mean, I don't think that, I, as Eric was saying, like this is going to be, everyone suddenly pays attention and says, oh, New Mexico did this, therefore we all right. do X, Y, Z. But I think it really is an important statement that mm -hmm. this is what, you know, New Mexico sort of is standing for, this is important in New Mexico, and every state that jumps into this and says, this is the position that we're taking, it does, as you know, Rich was saying, it mm -hmm. drives market, it drives, you know, this, it weighs in on this battle between California and 15 other, 22 other states, I think it is, yes. uh, the other states, and automakers who want this, That's right. right? And it says, this is where we are, we're adding our weight to this, and I think it is important to stand mm -hmm. up and say, we are with this, we're part of this fight, and New Mexico is small, but not unimportant, mm -hmm. and it's, it's not just symbolic, it really adds weight to this whole conversation, mm -hmm. and the whole, you know, the actual outcome is going to hinge on New Mexico and other states mm -hmm. taking this action, regardless of the small size of of the actual mm -hmm. number of cars being purchased. Sure, here. no, good point there, actually. Um, I want to talk about methane, and the governor has talked about this as well, and some new technologies out there to track methane clouds around New Mexico, Four Corners, we've been dealing this, with this for a while. Part of a bigger strategy in your sense for the governor, is this part of an overall picture about clean air, clean water, clean everything here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'm I'm much more encouraged by the the auto emissions move. I think it was bold, and I mm -hmm. and I give the administration all the credit. Also, thinking through the infrastructure, if you're going to do that, you know, we have to invest in the infrastructure for electric cars, for example. Mm -hmm. I'm a little more circumspect about the methane rules. People okay. who know this much better than I do uh, aren't sure whether this is real. This this to me sounds a little more 
um, symbolic, mm -hmm. um, mostly because, um, and again, I'm, I'm far from an expert on this, so I'm, I'm, I know just enough to be dangerous on this, but uh, from folks who I trust, is this really going to make any significant impact on our climate uh, goals, on our, um, certainly something has to be done. Right. Is this technology and is this project really going to get us there? Mm -hmm. Nowhere near what we could do compared to what we really having aggressive uh, auto emission standards. Mm -hmm. um, so um, this one feels a little more like a PR thing to me, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but um, but I'm sort of I'm sort of waiting uh, to see how aggressive the standards are going to be in terms of how this technology actually helps us reduce uh, uh, methane emissions. So good point there, Rachel. Pick up on that if you would. You know this idea of methane. You know. It, it, it's been out there for a while. It's not as if this is a brand new thing that the governor's just sort of springing on us, but we've been sort of stuck with it. We're not quite sure what to do about this. Is this the right way to go in your view in, in how she's kind of attacking this, making it more higher profile, I should say, than it had been? It's definitely, I mean, it's an interesting time to see all of these issues coming to the forefront, right? Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a time when a lot of players are going to have to make some tough decisions because there is a lot of pressure and anger right now right. from constituents, from consumers, from mm -hmm. folks, voters, mm -hmm. about climate change. You know, people are going to have to really decide where they line up, I think, and, right. and make a stand, as, as she's attempting to do. Interesting you just said that. I want to turn this to Mary, what you just said. The idea of the pushback, I talked about a second ago, but the governor's, you know, use of fossil fuels to get to this announcement. But it's a very real fear for a lot of people that they might lose their truck. <clears throat> if it's not you know, up to snuff, up to certain standards in two or three or four years. I mean, 2022 is not that far off down the road here. How should people be internalizing these changes if you don't really pay attention to climate stuff? Is this something that should be scary for people or? Um, well, I think that there's still a lot of room for like fine tuning um, and for, for, like, for communicating like these, these more detailed sure. questions that you have for like the actual consumer. Mm -hmm. I don't I think it's like supernatural to just like read these news stories and wonder these, have these questions come up as an individual. Mm -hmm. um, to me, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but mm -hmm. like it doesn't seem like, it's it applying to cars that are made in certain years down the road sure. yeah. Um, yeah. in addition. And then, you know, in Albuquerque, we already, we do emissions tests. Um, yeah. So it's, it's a little bit, it's at least that little small piece, it's going to be different. The measurements are going to be different, but sure. like that's not a new like process that's necessarily being introduced that's to right. at least a very large portion of New Mexico's population. That's right, that's right. So. Interesting, I'm, I'm a bug for the new electric wave of cars, motorcycles, mm -hmm. scooters. We got electric scooters buzzing around town. I think it's very cool. I love the electric thing. How does this impact how this all goes? Because I gotta think the electric manufacturers are sitting back going, y'all gonna come our way eventually. You know what I mean? You keep talking about emissions. Hello, we got zero over here. You guys want to really get after this. Mm -hmm. This is the way to go. Is this a boost for the electric? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think it also is a, an acknowledgement of that is the way things are going. Yeah. I think, you know, in the industry, folks are aware that that's where this is going to go, yeah. and it's just a matter of time. And they're waiting for everyone else to sort of catch up to that and mm -hmm. the, the dust to settle. But yeah, I, I don't think there's any way that this. This will obviously push us along, but regardless of this, that's where we're going. That's right. Does this help with the infrastructure? A lot of folks I know in the electric business are frustrated we're not getting along in the infrastructure. Is well, this boosted? I hope, you know? we, I hope we have a real conversation about that. Like there's all yeah. this, you know, ironically, all this oil and gas money that's helping right. you know, the, all this infrastructure. We're yeah. talking about broadband, <laughs> talking about a lot of really positive things that are sadly paid for by this really, really Sorry. troublesome uh, climate affecting uh, source of, of energy. Mm -hmm. Um, I will say, I think a lot of this has to do with, you know, uh, 
the, the, PNA, the uh, Energy Transition Act decision ah. was, while most of the environmental community was for it, you know, there has been some pushback that does this put mm -hmm. P&M in too much of a mon monopolistic position? Are mm -hmm. consumers going to bear the brunt? Mm -hmm. So I think that part of what's going on is not just the governor, but I think folks who, who are supporting this transition to a much cleaner economy mm -hmm. are trying to sort of say, look, it's not just that. We're doing a lot of things, um, and we're trying to, you know, it's the, it's the auto fleet. And by the way, there are a lot of cars that are older will be grandfathered. So really, it's the mm -hmm. newer cars. I think current law is 2011. And, okay. and, and, uh, and and newer, it'll, it'll, it'll affect them at all. So it's gotcha. like if you had a truck, you're not going to have to figure out how to put in a new catalytic converter or something. So it's like, mm -hmm. I think I think as people, to Mary's point, as people figure out like, okay, they're not going to take my, you know, they're going to make yeah, yeah, me yeah. like retrofit my car. Right, right. But as we get to a, the, the, the standard is for corporate average mm -hmm. fuel economies. It's your entire fleet. It balances out the teeny, teeny cars with the, the, with the gas guzzlers. And hopefully you get to a number mm -hmm. around 52 by 2025 mm -hmm. that your whole fleet is sort of uh, uh, compliant with. Gotcha. That. Gotcha. My understanding of how they're going to mm -hmm. do it. Yeah, Mary. I, 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 the last question, I guess, is this for the for this governor. It seems consistent with where she's going within the, the environment, right? It just seems to fit into a thread here. Politically, is she on safe ground here. It's going to work out. It's just ideas going to come and go, and all that. Yeah, kind of thing. And, I mean, it's definitely following, like you said. You mentioned the ETA. Um, mm -hmm. So it's. Interesting, I think, to watch um, because she has to be mindful of, you know, the the industry in the eastern part of the state, and, right. and you can see the balancing of that, especially with the methane emissions discussion That's right. or the methane discussion. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so, I don't know that I have a you know a strong yes. forecast on that, but you, you can see that there is a, a mindfulness of like this the, the a lot a large part of the electorate is is for. Uh, is progressive on this right. point of, of the environment. And then um, she, there's catering, or right. catering, I don't know if that's the right word, but there there is like keeping in mind um, the needs and demands right. of the, the oil and gas It's industry. hard when, when I, you know, my sense of it, when I see her talk about the Permian Basin being a high place for a lot of methane, so, well, that's where all this money Eric's talking about is coming from, yeah. the Permian Basin. And these guys are having a boom out there. They're, they're feeling really good about it. So, you know, the question about Serge, I'll put to you, is how do you balance that as a governor? It's a very interesting thing to me. You've got to call these guys out if you have to, but at the same time, it's a tricky thing. It's very, very hard, you know? <laughs> yeah, but that's above my pay grade as well. Right, right. <laughs> I mean, I it is a balancing act. And I, yeah. I, I, I do think she has said this last thing I'll say. I, 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 she has tried to walk a very difficult line. I mean, yep. you know, the, the reality is with this transition to a much cleaner economy that we're trying to go through that she's shown incredible leadership on, at the same time, it's created a bit of a of an oil and gas and fracking boom, right? So, like, I think the industry is like, whatever you want, like, we just got to get this stuff out before before 2045, get us, make as much, you know, they're making hundreds. Yeah. If you look at the balance sheets for these companies, it's in the trillions of dollars. It's, it's hundreds it's of times. billions of dollars. Yep. So, like, get in there, you know, try to, try to reduce the political problems, get it out of there as soon as possible, because at 2045, yep. we can't really do it anymore, mm, right? right? So. Uh, Interesting. Good last point there. We'll back, we're, we will be back to talk sports bonds here in Albuquerque in a minute. How to process all that impeachment news. We have, write a task and list of what we need to be able to accomplish. And then we go into, into prototyping. And then once we have a design that we've settled on that we figure works best, we then go and use the kit and design it and build the product. We've all been bombarded by news coverage of the impeachment inquiry into President Trump. 
There's a readout of a phone call and new admissions and denials each day. But the same set of facts often produces very different news coverage and dramatically different political arguments. To help get a handle on how to process all this information, correspondent Gwyneth Dolan sat down with UNM professor Jessica Fiesel. Jessica Fiesel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I've been looking at some polls, and the average of the national polls right now shows that almost half of Americans, about half, support an impeachment inquiry. But what's really interesting about that is that we're talking about 80% of, of Democrats, but only 12% of Republicans. So when we talk about this half of Americans thing, that doesn't represent the picture of this at all. How, what is going on there? It's a good question. Um, the response that I have is that partisanship is very deep. Um, some scholars would say deeper than ever before. So the partisanship that we used to just call our party identification has increasingly become part of who we are as our identity. And that identity then becomes a stronger part of, of, of who we are and how we act and the information that we receive and how we process it. So a lot of the information that we receive, um, we filter through this lens of being a Democrat or being a Republican. And when we hear th something about you know Trump's behavior or what he has done, we filter it through that lens. And whether this agrees and confirms what I believe and who I am or whether it disagrees with that sort of construction of who I am. And that level of partisanship and that level of identity we've come to call um, affective polarization. And it's really sort of this growing, increasing partisan hostility that people experience because they're, not only is it just their party ID, but it's their identity is being assaulted. It's their identity and who they are. So, you know, something happens then, it's like, what does my tribe think about this? Yeah, some people refer to it as sort of a tribalism. And, and in many cases, it really is. So the, the scholarship is based on social identity theory, which is this pretty simply, um, understood concept of having an in-group identity and an out-group to juxtapose yourself against, right? So you have in-group favoritism and support and out-group hostility. It's very much like a sports mentality, right? Uh, you support right. your team and you hate the other team. And so we've increased- Go Lobos. Exactly. <laughs> Everyone else exactly. is terrible. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, and so we increasingly see that in terms of party identification, that it's my team, ride or die, and that team is horrible and terrible and bad. And almost information doesn't matter sort of when you're so entrenched in that position in that tribe. That is interesting that you say that because you know we seem to not be able to agree on a basic set of facts and this this came into focus this week um, having to do with Ukraine and the and the memo right so uh, one major poll this week asked do you believe that Donald Trump probably mentioned an investigation into Biden while he was talking to the Ukrainian president and this is something that Trump admitted that he did, right? He's like, yeah, I mentioned it. 85% um, of Democrats said, yeah, but 40% of Republicans said, no, he didn't do it. Mm -hmm. but, there, but the president said he did it. <laughs> so, you know, do we as a nation have, a, a, does this tribalism prevent us from accepting a basic set of facts? Yeah, it does. So um, we have this, a term called motivated reasoning which kind of um, has many results, but one is that you, you take an information and you compare it to what you believe to be true, and if it supports your pre-existing viewpoint and your pre-existing ideals, 
then you easily accept it and believe it to be true. But if it's information that sort of goes against your team, goes against what you believe to be true, you reject it quite quickly. And so we can all be exposed to the same piece of information and interpret it according to our motivations, according to how we want to see it and, and whether or not, honestly, at a very uh, biological level, it feels good. So that motivated right. reasoning results from something called cognitive dissonance, which is the physical discomfort that you feel when you're presented with information that goes against your pre-existing viewpoints. You get sweaty, your heart starts to race, you get really just uncomfortable. And so the, the way that we deal with that biological discomfort is to psychologically find a nice warm bubble bath of agreement where we can sink in and say that's wrong that's incorrect that's fake news or yes go team I'm gonna keep walking without questioning it deeply and so is this bubble bath Fox News or MSNBC is that it what it is, is. it is We're, you're soaking in it Madge that's what <laughs> it, it is <laughs> Um, so we engage in a lot of sort of selective exposure if you have a high level of cognitive dissonance. So if, it, if, if exposure to views that you disagree with makes you feel really uncomfortable, you selectively choose information that you engage in, or excuse me, that um, reaffirms your viewpoints. And that selective exposure is facilitated perfectly in today's media environment where we can choose more easily than ever before exactly what we want to see and hear. I'm, I'm hearing you say that it is physically uncomfortable for us to take in information that's contrary to what we want to hear. Mm -hmm. So when people hear, oh, you know, did, did Trump say this to the, to the Ukrainian president? Most people uh, in the same poll said they thought that was bad if he did. So they're like, of course he did. The Democrats say, of course he did, even if they're not really sure. And the Republicans say, why he never? He wouldn't, no, absolutely not. But it's not about the facts at all. No, it's about Republicans see their party being assaulted, they see this information, they recognize that it's bad, and they have a lot more cognitive dissonance to work through in order to get to a place of being able to accept that information as, as true, um, as factual, and as something that they can reconcile with their pre-existing viewpoints. So, you know, it looks like from these numbers, oh, these Republicans are wrong, but how many of these Democrats have no idea what was in the memo, right? <laughs> they just hear Trump and they're like, no, what's yeah. the answer? No, what's the question? No, I'm gonna say no to whatever it is, right? Yeah, yeah, that, that gut response is, is strong and is something that increasingly we need to work to try to uh, critically evaluate, um, but it is hard to do when your natural disposition is to respond quickly, right? Yeah, you know, I, there was another little tidbit um, that I found in here. A study published last week showed that more than half of Americans said the news was really stressing them out. Mm -hmm. And maybe it, that's even in their own bubbles, I guess, right? <laughs> but that 16% of them said, um, politics has made my home life less pleasant. <laughs> I feel that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, um, that concerns me deeply, right? Be it, first of all, there's just a lot of news out there. So to be a politically informed person now takes a lot more time and effort, not only to actually consume all the information that's out there, but also to be a savvy consumer of that information, to be able to understand source credibility and whether they're relying on good factual information and good sources, and then also to be a critical sort of consumer of news and evaluate whether or not you're dismissing it because it is contradictory to your pre-existing viewpoint or whether you're just running with it because it feels really good, right? So there's a lot on the viewer now and the reader now to be, um, there's a lot more pressure on them to be sort of media literate. Um, 
And I think that that is something that increasingly is taught in schools, but for generations that grew up in sort of an objective media environment, um, they take a lot of the information sort of at face value without really thinking critically about where it came from, how it was produced, um, and whether it's trustworthy. But I, I feel like most of us feel like, but no, that's not me. Right. I, I, am, I understand my media. I, I know who's good and who's bad. Mm -hmm. I, I feel like I'm processing this quite well. No, I don't read anything but this one blog. Yeah. <laughs> no, I don't read anything but Twitter and I only follow these conservative people or these liberal people. Right. No, it's, it's hard. Even for me, you know, I teach this and I preach it in my classrooms. Like, you need to be media literate. You need to think about the information that you're receiving and how you're responding to it and whether or not you're being rational in your response. And there's a wonderful new book out um, called Taming Intuition by Kevin Arsenault and Ryan Vanderweelen, in which they really recognize that there's this, this fundamental um, thing that happens where if we can be more critically reflective of how we receive information, we can be more rational in the thoughts and preferences that we express. So we can hear some piece of information and say, oh, I hate that it's wrong, but reflect on that and think, okay, why am I saying that? Where is that coming from? Oh, it's my partisan viewpoint. I'm gonna go ahead and check that um, and then try to engage in something that's a little bit more balanced or at least recognize that. And if you can recognize that, it minimizes some of the ability of the media to really shape your viewpoint and to increase the partisan divide. I think there are probably a lot of people out there who are thinking, why does it have to be so hard? Why do I have to work so hard? I just want people to tell me the news. I don't want to have to sit there and, and fact check them the whole time. Mm -hmm. Former Vice President Joe Biden's campaign did something really unusual this week and sent a letter to 17 TV anchors and executives saying, quit booking Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal lawyer. He's been on the shows, he's talking about Ukraine and, and the idea that Joe Biden asked the Ukrainians not to investigate his son for something. Now, Giuliani has not presented any evidence for this at all. And Biden's campaign is saying, this is a lie, it's not true, there's nothing there. And every time you have him on, you are perpetuating this falsehood. Of course, this presents a really difficult uh, situation for the media because they can't just say yes to whatever the Biden campaign says. And Giuliani is the president's lawyer. He speaks for the president. You know, in some ways, we have to have him on. But where does this leave the viewer? So that's a really good question. Um, and there's some recent work out that looks at, you know, um, when a message is communicated, right? And that's, I guess one way to say like when somebody says something on camera and it's fake or false or wrong or misleading or just otherwise incorrect, it still has an impression on the viewer even once that information has been fact checked. So you could say, you know, the sky is, is purple and then we'll fact check it and say, no, it's blue. But you as the viewer heard that original message and the fact checked corrected information and you still remember information from that original message. He's always gonna be the purple guy. He's always gonna be the purple guy. So when he goes out there and says things or when anybody goes out and say, says things that are incorrect and, and, and misleading, it has an effect on public perceptions, on the information that the public retains that cannot be completely corrected for, which is damaging to democracy. We just have to try harder to keep up and be like, oh no, that guy's not purple, right? That, he's blue, I read that somewhere, he's actually blue. We have yeah. to, that's on us too? It is, and you know, this is one of those things where it's, 
it, it, it's frustrating because, you know, in the 1980s, we had these wonderful protections, well, wonderful protections <laughs> in place of the Fairness Doctrine, right, where we, we had very few channels, and so they were required to present public information in a way that was fair and balanced and equitable. Um, and so you get people saying, you know, and now we're from the other side. Um, and as technology evolved to facilitate cable and to facilitate the internet, it made it so that we can now have an abundance of viewpoints out there. And so the FCC dialed back that regulation and eliminated the Fairness Doctrine, which allowed all of these different agencies um, and uh, channels to be able to broadcast whatever they wanted. And so while that's lovely for the viewer, in fact, it makes it great. I can perfectly choose exactly what I want. It also places a tremendous burden on the viewer to be able to filter through the media abundance that exists and to select information that is good, that is, is what the news is supposed to do, that is, you know, inform the public to allow us to hold our representatives accountable and function as a representative democracy. So there is a huge burden on the public right now to be able to filter and sort this information to make sense of it. And, and the added difficulty of fact-checking everything that's out there and not being able to trust um, elites, political elites, is really almost too much for the public to bear. Yeah, you know, I, and I've been watching um, some of these folks. You, you're, on, you're live on television. You're on for hours. There's only so much you can do on those kinds of cable shows. And I have been seeing a lot of folks try to push back in the moment, you know, on those details. But then it just looks like uh, whoever the, the uh, you know, anchor or reporter is, is the opposite of whoever the interviewee is. It just mm -hmm. puts them as, oh, that, that anchor must be a, a Democrat, must be a Republican because he's questioning or he's pushing back on this right. number. Is part of the solution for us to consciously take a step out and look at, across at the other side of the spectrum from us. So if you're liberal, sh should you be watching Fox News? If, if you're uh, really conservative, should you take up Rachel Maddow? I mean, is that the prescription? It's gonna make you sweat. It's gonna raise your pulse. <laughs> yeah. You're gonna feel sick to your stomach, yeah. is that it? You know, I feel like in a media environment that is market-based, they give the viewers what the viewers attend to, right? It's, it's a competition for eyes. And so I wouldn't encourage anyone to pay really close attention or any attention to um, sources that don't provide good news. Because if we then, as consumers, as, as eyes that they're pandering and catering to, if we put our attention on the quality journalism, on the people who do good investigative research, on the, the sources that don't sensationalize and, and you know, dramatize information, then hopefully in this market, they will can provide more of that. And I think that that's what we need. We need to move away from, from the yelling and the screaming and the, um, you know, the hostility and, and realize that in fact, and studies show that while we have this increase in our affective polarization, while we hate the other party more than we ever have before, we actually agree on a lot of issues, right? Even the most polarizing issues like abortion, there's a lot of agreement there on um, gun control and leg legislation in that area. There's a lot of agreement there. But we often just default to what is easiest, and that is sort of this in-group, out-group, you know, affection, hostility, and increasing sort of partisan hostility. Well, we're all going to work harder on that. <laughs> Everybody needs to work harder. <laughs> Thank you for sharing this with us. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. About 70% of our kids are homeschooled this year, and, and the remainder are both public and private school. 
Uh, you'll find a lot of robotics teams in school, specific schools. We compete against those same teams. We just do it from a different approach. Mayor Tim Keller is pushing a $28 million package of sports-related projects. He says will boost Albuquerque's profile as a city that can handle larger sporting events. The mayor wants to refinance existing lodgers' tax bonds to pay for, among other things, a $10 million renovation of Los Altos Park that would add a softball field and a BMX track, $3 million bucks for a multi-use soccer complex, $3.5 million to expand the Westside baseball facilities, improvements to downtown connector trails, the convention center, the city's track facility. None of this sounds bad, Rachel, but bonds are public money. And there's a fundamental question here. Does Albuquerque necessarily need this sports tourism thing? And if, is, is this the right way to go if, the, if, in fact, it is yes? What's your thought on that? So it's mm -hmm. always, you know things are going to get interesting mm -hmm. when you roll out your big plan. And immediately some of the groups impacted by that plan come out and say, hey, we really wish you'd talk to us about this first. Exactly. So you have the hoteliers in town asking some tough questions about, are these projects needed? Would they help increase tourism visits to our city? And mm -hmm. if not, are there other things we could do with this money that would, mm -hmm. like making more upgrades to the convention center? Right. You have the city and Keller arguing it's important to move now and move fast because we have a robust lodgers tax. We can get a lot of stuff done with this money now. Mm -hmm. I just, I think there are more heated discussions to be had on this. I can, I can feel it too. No <laughs> question there. Mary, let's, let's stay on that tack that Rachel just established, and that is the idea of the lodger's tax mm -hmm. and how it's spent. Some, something seemed a little off here that those guys weren't included in this conversation. Is that? That's what struck me reading the journal story, yeah. um, was, was that they seemed surprised by it. It sounded to me like Keller said that they're meeting some deadlines for the next year, and but um, it makes you wonder about the. Did anyone you know, understand what they were saying the when they were year? talking about this bond thing and the timing? I, did, I literally did not understand what they were saying in the article. You know what I mean? It was so arcane and so bizarre. Yeah. The public's you know ability to, gra to to grasp this is this the way to go and hitch it to a bond window? You know. Well, um, yeah. I <laughs> I think that like the that's it's just communication. Yeah. You know. Um, I, I'm curious about the rush to getting to this moment. That's, I don't think, something that's really been brought to light yet that could explain that. And, and, and right. if, I, if I read correctly, the vote, is, is it still coming up quite soon? Yes, is, as okay. a matter of fact. Yeah, yeah. So, scheduled. I mean, scheduled, scheduled, at least, right. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So the issue aside, there's the fact that the, the city has some ideas about what they want to do with mm -hmm. this money. Um, mm -hmm. And that's its own discussion. But then I think, yeah, the... The idea, um, if true, that the lodgers or the hoteliers were not um, part of this is mm -hmm. is, like, is, 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 is interesting almost as a side story. Well, here's the piece that was, I'll throw this to Serge. Members of the city's own lodgers tax advisory board say they knew nothing of the plan until the mayor announced it. That's the city's own, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean, run deal there. Mm -hmm. what, what's your sense of why they're moving this direction to make this kind of work? Why go this, this route? Yeah, great question. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the lack of communication, the lack of understanding, I, and it could be you know some sort of tactic to they, we've created this emergency sure. to have it run That's to, right. to have everybody buddy jump on this um, you know which we've seen in lots of other situations, mm -hmm. um, but that is probably not sufficient justification for for this to not have a greater discussion and not not mm -hmm. have 
more input on on what and how and when and why. Yeah. I think. Um, Please. I don't know if we have time, but I. Yeah, yeah. I think um, the tension is right having a meaningful role for community in these decisions. I mean, we're facing it with uh, what, what happens with New Mexico United, what happens with the rail yards, what happens mm -hmm. with a lot of these big projects that we think will be really transformational for the city. Mm -hmm. And then, then there's this idea is how do you get people bought in? And so, the, so these advisory committees are supposed to be how we plug community mm -hmm. voice mm -hmm. into it. You know, people can talk to their That's elected right. representative. You can come to city council and, and say it's a great idea or not. But, but really, this is how we do it. So I do think, I think what's going on, just to your, to your initial question, Gene, is I think what's going on is here's an opportunity to refinance these bonds and to actually add to the bonds. Um, and basically, we have a revenue stream to back these. It's a, it's a great, I think they're seeing it as a great shot in the arm for the economy. Mm -hmm. It's to build some projects that people have been talking about for a while. Mm -hmm. I think if they, if they had the money, they'd like to build a, a stadium for the New Mexico United, given how crazy the support has been for this team mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and how much we've needed a shot in the arm, given everything else right. going on. That's right. They do get something in this process. They get they get this practice facility. It's also a community facility. So I'm not sure everything in the package can really be consider, considered sports related. Right. But I think it's an opportunity that they saw a really uh, like a window where they can add some uh, a huge uh, stimulus. I don't think anybody in the larger business community, the people who build stuff, mm -hmm. are going to scream about it. I know the probably right. construction industry, the the commercial real estate industry, all those folks can say, hey, you know. Mum's the word, like, if they're going to build right. it, like, you know, our guys can work and it's great for the economy. I, mean, yeah. I don't think they're going to scream about it. Well, let's talk about this idea of sports tourism in the whole. This one might be able to say it's a bit of a Trojan horse here because you can't really see much in this list, like I read at the beginning of the segment, that would impact tourism, Rachel Sams. You know, I can't see people going, ooh, that connector trail between downtown. <laughs> let's get on a plane, honey. Let's spend five grand to go to Albuquerque to take that trail in. How does this contribute to tourism? <laughs> It just seems like an awfully big bucket here, using that word, you know what I mean, this tourism thing. It's really mm -hmm. interesting. I think one factor that may also be at play here is that there just, as Eric said, is this huge excitement around the United mm -hmm. um, in uh, New Mexico right now. Sure. And I think that that may be inspiring a desire to do more in sports. Mm -hmm. I don't, it doesn't seem like as a community we're at the place where we would be able to talk about a stadium yet. And That's when right. you have those discussions, That's right. they get very complicated. That discussion of putting public money into a major stadium, That's is right. that is a tough one. Because not everyone's into soccer. Right, but, but, right. But everyone's paying in. Yes, you exactly. I mean? So it gets tricky. Exactly. You know, Mary, this, I, I'm still on this idea of sports tourism. Do you hear tourism when you read this list here? Do you, do you feel <laughs> like there's something out there to get people on airplanes and spend money here? I definitely thought of tourism when I read the story, but more in the context of could Albuquerque swing this? Could Albuquerque, you know, like Eric was saying, or and you were saying, you know, is can, I don't know, if, if Albuquerque has not really arrived as, as a, a, a city for sports, right. as a sports destination. So it's, it's a big leap, but I mean, <laughs> the, there's obviously some people who think this is this is what the city mm -hmm. needs, and mm -hmm. spent a lot of time thinking about it. Well, you know, it's interesting. They're capitalizing as I'm rereading the thing here, uh, Serge. The idea that the the national senior games were a big hit mm -hmm. here, right? Yeah. They're hitching this whole thing, and that's willing. That's great. I'm glad that worked out. But I still don't see how that means sports tourism <laughs> is a thing here, because that was not a tourist thing. That was mm -hmm. an event that was brought here. Mm -hmm. Right. If, if this is what they really mean, that we need more events like the senior games, that's one thing. But hiding it under tourism, that just seems like a whole other deal altogether. So, I mean, I'm I'm no stranger to, you know, loosely fitting things into mm -hmm. the categories. But mm -hmm. let me 
to say tourism doesn't have to mean hop on a plane and come to the Sunport, right? Okay. Someone, if we want someone from Rio Rancho to come use our BMX park and spend money, um, or you know, spend that spend the day on the mm -hmm. connector trail or whatever. So. I'm a little bit more forgiving. But isn't than that you sports are with that participation sort of... versus sports tourism? Well, you got to pay park right? and buy food. I mean, yeah. I don't know what tourism means necessarily, and I guess the right. hoteliers would say, well, they're not staying in our hotel. I think that's the point, Gene. Yeah. I think yeah. I think we're getting hung up on this tourism word. I think what right. they are maybe should have said or trying to say is we can bring in sports events which will help with our economy and I think right. what the lodges are saying is like show us other than senior games are you gonna bring in big tournaments and what they're saying Thank is look you. this will likely bring in more all sorts of you know collegiate level maybe mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. amateur level events if we have a better sports infrastructure and I think it is kind of a, a messaging issue it's not like, hey, Albuquerque is a place because I'm a sports fanatic. Like, that's not right. what they're saying. What they're saying right. is, where, where can we hold our Little League tournament? Where can we hold our soccer tournament? Where mm -hmm. can we hold our right. senior games? Albuquerque pulled off a really pretty impressive event last year. Like, maybe, you know, they've got, they've got a practice field for soccer. They've mm -hmm. got a BMX. Like, maybe we want to have our national, international event there. I think that's what this is supposed to say. Right. I'm not uh, sure that's what's being conveyed in yeah, the press, right? right. I'm, not, yeah, right. I'm not sold. But I, I think... You know, I'm a big fan of the United as well. Sure, <laughs> I'm sure. hoping that that uh, we can do something to sort of capitalize on that and, right. and maintain that. I don't know that this is the only way. Last last point here, Rachel. Any hit for the mayor from the Lodgers folks uh, on this? Because he's kind of sideways with them right now. I, yeah, you I think he I mean? is. Yeah. I, and with the time frame, even like, how would you even get them together for a meeting now right. before the vote? Like, right. that's that's a tough one. Oof. Well, we'll see what happens there. We're up against the clock. I have to leave it there. When, we, when this group comes back, how many times should New Mexico let law enforcement officers get hired after they've been fired somewhere else? That leads to incidents like this that are traumatizing to the individuals involved, that mm -hmm. are dreadful for everybody. But it's, it's a real indictment of the lack of training, the lack of understanding that this is a special situation, mm -hmm. and the idea that, oh, let's just put someone with a taser in there and that'll be fine. Learn by doing. It's a tried and true technique that's being applied to a robotics competition designed to get students interested in science, technology, engineering, and math. STEM, if you follow education. Recently, we sent our crew out to a demonstration by PM for students who are building a robot that will help electrical linemen work faster and safer when the power goes out in an emergency. Hot. So we're a nonprofit that works with students that are participating in competitive robotics. So this year we have 60 kids on the team participating this fall in, in the best robotics competition, which is boosting engineering, science, and technology. Each year, the theme for the competition is different. The objectives for what the students have to accomplish involves a different kind of science or STEM area. And so, for instance, last year it was about cleaning up waste in our oceans. This year it's about what happens if all the power goes out. The whole thing is surrounded where as if, if this actually happened, that would we be able to make a product that would be able to go and actually fix it. They just finished the first iteration of the robot and they're just starting to make some tweaks to refine it. Of course, our game field doesn't, it's not a real power line. We have a game field that's sort of downsized. We have write a task and list of what we need to be able to accomplish, and then we go into, into prototyping. And then once we have a design that we've settled on that we figure works best, we then go and use the kit and design it 
and build the product. If we added, say, insulators to it, it would also help push the idea of that insulating helps protect linemen and can also use to protect, the, say, the product. If we were to do the ARC demo on this now, put that machine on it, it wouldn't do a thing. My dad actually is an electrician, and so this kind of is the kind of like the backdrop for what he does. He's always teaching us about what could happen, what you could do instead of, and all that kind of stuff before if a power outage came out. Because out where we live, um, we get some pretty bad snowstorms, and the power does go out pretty often. About 70% of our kids are homeschooled this year, and the remainder are both public and private school. Uh, you'll find a lot of robotics teams in school, specific schools. We compete against those same teams. We just do it from a different approach. This is one of the latest and greatest things now. The coach, Shelly Grunig, has always given them opportunities to get out in the community and both to present to the community what they're doing as well as to learn from professionals um, about how they, the things that they can apply to that year's theme. It basically chokes itself on that pole. Yeah, the theme is, I think it's definitely relevant to our lives. And as they've learned today, this is something we all live with is our power and how it serves us and helps us. And also it helps them think about the future. The Rio Arriba County deputy who used a taser on a 15-year-old high school special needs student has been criminally charged in, the, in that May incident. Jeremy Barnes has also been fired. The Rio Grande Sun broke the news of the incident and the discipline and the KOAT News reports. Barnes has been fired from two other jobs and left another two while he was under investigation, according to an attorney who filed a lawsuit on behalf of that student. Now, there's a lot to dig into here, Mary, but we wanted to start with the Jeremy, Bar Jeremy, Jeremy Barnes history. A lot of discipline for a guy to still get a gun and a badge. It's interesting to me how um, the, the bit where he didn't even fill in where he had been in the Grants Police Department force on his application, uh, and it just, well, nobody knew. No one knew this man had even been, or if they knew in Espanola, they didn't care about it. So what's your sense of how that goes from one place to another, how we follow officers, and how we can find out what these guys are all about, frankly, their backgrounds. Something got missed here, well, desperately. I mean, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, so I guess, first of all, I, I, Ideally, there would be some sort of fantastic system for tracking officers. Right. At the same time, I mean, I think, um, you know, I'm a journalist. I can do some pretty quick background checks on sure. people pretty quickly. Yep. Um, so there's that as well. Um, this story is interesting for the viewers who have not been wa watching it. Um, mm -hmm. The Rio Grande Sun has stayed on top of it. Yep. They're doing a great job. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's a lot of layers too. So of course, like you mentioned, um, this idea of a police department, hire, or excuse me, a law enforcement agency mm -hmm. hiring someone with a history, it happens, it has happened in Albuquerque. Right. I just reported a case last year. Um, so, and then there's the fact that this is, a, the tasing itself is such a high profile issue mm -hmm. um, for a pretty small town um, law enforcement ag agency as well. So, mm -hmm. so I think they find themselves um, kind of in like the big leagues of, of media or journalism, so to speak, for this state, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so it's interesting to watch that. And then of course, it seems like there's some freedom of information or press, press issues too with just the interaction. Yep. It's just, it's fascinating to watch on yep. Twitter and on the Rio Grande Sun's website um, of how, how this is kind of playing out and um, mm -hmm. Based on what I'm reading, yeah, the, the sheriff's 
the way he's trying to deal with it all. Yeah, interesting. And in, when you think about this as well, Rachel, the idea that um, that video was so critical, it was so critical here. Lapel, you know what I mean? We've been having these arguments about these lapel cameras over and over and over. I can't help but think about that kid and her poor mom, his poor mom, if that lapel camera had not been part of the process. You know what I mean? And this is a resource officer, cops and schools. What are we saying here about cops and schools as well and how we kind of deal with that situation? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, without mm -hmm. public documentation, without public information, right. this would be a very different story. It probably would not even be out there. I think about uh, the reporting that the Rio Grande Sun did where one of the first reactions of the department apparently was to try to just transfer the deputy. That's right. That's right. That might have on been his what happened. On his own yeah. request. Yeah. And that might have been what happened right. if there had not been this record and this attention to this. Good point right there, exactly right. Pick up on that if you would, the idea of resource officers, lapel cameras, all that stuff. Well, there's multiple know. layers. Yes. Like, <laughs> so first of all, like, do, does it does it really make sense to have people who have, you know, you can call this lethal force, but, you know, tasers can be do really do some harm on a campus. So there's a whole conversation about we need more law enforcement, That's more right. folks mm -hmm. on campus. So, there, so that brings that into question. That's this right. whole fight we've been having with in here in Bernalillo County about lapel cams mm -hmm. really giving the protecting officers who are doing the right thing from sort of being wrongly accused of things, but also protecting the public. Like, I watched the video and it was disturbing. We were talking yeah. about it before we went mm -hmm. on the air. I mean, I think it's really disturbing how quickly it was used, how yep. sort of cavalierly they were used. And then the, we have to also put it in some context. You know, Rhea Reba, sadly, you know, former sheriff has a very storied history, history right. uh, married to a, formerly married to a, a powerful state legislator. Mm -hmm. uh, Rodella, who, you know, who had a, this, the former sheriff had a, is in jail now for That's some right. pretty egregious uh, crimes That's and right. abuse of power. So there is a culture in that particular mm -hmm. department. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's unique to Rio Riva County, but I think it's it certainly um, calls for a lot more public oversight and a lot. I'm glad the attorney general is getting involved in this because I think that local law enforcement, mm -hmm. there's some great departments. I'm a firm believer that most law enforcement uh, folks are, are good folks. Mm -hmm. But there's people like this guy who, if we're not watching, if we don't have lapel cameras, if we don't have a way to, to sort of hold them accountable, right. if there isn't a system in place that can say, like, how often has this person sort of been outside the law, right. then we, gotta, we have a real problem with the credibility of law enforcement at a time when we really are, are at a kind of a crisis point between, right. uh, between sort of uh, crime and, and how much confidence we have in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. right? Good points there. Uh, Serge, when you, another layer here that was interesting to me is the idea of the training this man received. Mm -hmm to be in this situation, which consisted of two weeks mm -hmm. from one person. And I know some folks, probably you guys do too, who work with special needs kids, highly insulted yes. that you can verbally teach someone in two weeks how to deal with high stress situations with mm -hmm. special needs kids. There's no way. No. There's absolutely no way that's gonna work out. So the school system has another thing they need to deal with, how they train these folks to deal with these kids as well. Right, I mean, so, you know, that's the, School resource officers, it's a national phenomenon, this idea that it makes schools safer. What, right. It's pretty well documented that it actually makes them less safe and that it's introducing <clears throat> more students into the criminal justice system That's at right. a younger age. But when you right. talk about a, a disabled uh, student or sure. student with special needs, they not only need special training, these students often have their own plans, right? That's a right. behavioral intervention plan that yep. that is an agreement with the school on how that's going to be handled. And the SRO may not have any idea, may not have mm -hmm. special training, maybe say, this is a situation I learned in a context of an adult out in the, you know, in the regular world rather than here in the school. And that's right. it's a disservice to everybody that leads to 
incidents like this that are traumatizing to the individuals involved, that mm -hmm. are dreadful for everybody. But it's, it's a real indictment of the lack of training, the lack of understanding that this is a special situation, mm -hmm. and the idea that, oh, let's just put someone with a taser in there and that'll be fine. Interesting. I want to pick, Mayor, I want to pick up something uh, Rachel mentioned a second ago, and this idea that, you know, you could, you could go in there, and tone is important, is why that video was so uh, critical. Tone is very important in these things. You can read something about what somebody said, but it's a whole other deal when you've got guys swearing at students, you know, mm -hmm. any threatening students in this horrible tone of voice. I got to think that the city fathers and, and moms uh, of Espanol has got to pull back here and say, what are we doing here with this SRO, this resource officer business? Is there a conversation to be had here? Is this enough of an incident to really have a stronger look at this idea up there? Well, I mean, SROs have been, a, gosh, I think it's a solid 60 years or so. Right. That it was it really kind of burst onto like news and, and the work that journalists do to, to understand it better. Mm -hmm. um, you're always, as far as kind of the public opinion question, um, you're always going to have people on both sides. Sure. And I would assume it's the case in Española. So right. there will be um, parents who truly question um, the, you know, as Hector Baldera said in his statement, like is the safety of schools and like, you know, these should be places. Mm -hmm. um, well, I, no one would argue that these should be places where children feel safe, but right. but just like whether SROs are, are, are good for that or not. Mm -hmm. And then there are very pro-law enforcement, um, you know, people, and we see this all the time. Right. Um, so with every use of force issue, um, mm -hmm. there, there will always be people who question the use of force, and then there will always be those who wonder, um, who, who believe that the law enforcement would be in the right. Right. Yeah. That's it, and that's that exactly. Yeah. Right. You know, Eric, let me bring I up something you mentioned it. about the culture of, of the situation there. Well, Sheriff Lujan, it's in the news very recently for pulling over somebody with a Mexican flag flying and an American flag. Felt they were on the wrong side. Decided he could do some cur curbside justice and straighten these people out. Now they got another legal problem over this. Is this making your point about how something's got to break up? Yeah, here you know, I think going? part of the challenge, and I'm glad that the AG's involved. Mm -hmm. um, part of the problem is local governments, right? And we have the problem here, the biggest county in the state, you know, the, the county commission in Albuquerque, in, in Bernalillo County, is having a terrible time trying to raid. I was at a couple of those hearings, those commission meetings, where, mm -hmm. where the family of, of victims uh, of the most recent, uh, you know, sheriff-involved shooting were saying, like, we have to do something around lapel cam because this, the story is not really what happened. That's and right. even the, the biggest, most arguably the most resourced, the most sophisticated, uh, the most urban, mm -hmm. um, most experienced, you would say, biggest staff, they can't seem to force their sheriff because he's an independent elected official. That's right. So if you take a smaller county like Rio Reba, where being the sheriff is kind of a powerful if you don't have a good moral compass, if you see that as a, as many sheriffs, sadly, in smaller counties have seen themselves as like, you know, there's a new sheriff in town, mm -hmm. I set the rules, and by the way, you, the county commission, very little oversight because I'm independently elected. Right. It's great for maybe democracy to have as many folks elected and accountable to the public as possible, but this is a great example of maybe you need an, another level of oversight from another body that's the governing body of the county mm -hmm. that they should be able to say like this is unacceptable behavior mm -hmm. you can zero out their budget you can put all sorts that's of conditions right. we haven't been able to do that here you know yeah. there, there have been efforts to try to get uh, sheriff gonzalez to using the budget to do the right thing on the right. cameras and he's just like look yeah you didn't elect me the people elect me 
They knew I didn't support cameras. They elected right. me anyway. Yep. I'm going to do what I want to do. And that creates a real challenge for us because you sort of have these rogue, these rogue uh, uh, law enforcement officials saying, like, I'm not accountable. Who am I, who am I accountable to? I'm not accountable mm -hmm. to anybody. Mm -hmm. Only in four years or eight years. Exactly right. Good last point there. That's it for this week. Thanks again to our panelists for digging in on this week's news and offering their opinions. Thanks for joining us and for staying informed and engaged. Don't forget to join our Facebook conversation throughout the week. We'll see you again next week in Focus. Funding for New Mexico in Focus provided by the McCune Charitable Foundation and viewers like you.